Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I'd like to welcome you to our program, Insight into Isaiah. We are in the midst of the study right now, and in fact, we are at chapter 43 and at verse 14 as we continue to study the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. And as I've said in the introduction, this is where Isaiah will do a lot of sermonizing, and he tells us a lot about the Messiah coming what's going to happen with the Messiah, the end of the ages, and he takes current events and he shows the parallels uh, to those future things that will be happening. Now, this is in the midst of that he is not happy with the way uh, Israel is behaving before the Lord. Israel is not doing well, and Isaiah is trying to provoke them uh, to turn back to the Lord, turn back to uh, righteousness, and so we hear this interspersed message. This is the sermonizing of where he's trying to provoke his countrymen to turn back to the Lord, and at the same time, speaking of God's great promises of the end of his redemption and his restoration of all things. So, with that short introduction, let's pick up where we left off last and turn with me to Isaiah 43 beginning at verse 14, where it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse and the army and the mighty men. They will lie down together and not rise up. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to th mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth, and what will you be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and the beasts of the field shall glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Now, before we go any further, that paragraph is addressing something that was both happening in, in Isaiah's day and he was projecting was going to happen uh, soon into the future. It's part of the history of Israel, and namely is this. The Babylonians, uh, if you recall, um, were the, the they were made up of the people called the Chaldeans, uh, and uh, they rose to power. And if you recall, it was the Babylonians that came down and captured the house of Judah, took them into seventy years of captivity, and then they were brought back after seventy years. The prophet Daniel was involved in that, and so forth. And there's a story told about Isaiah that when King Hezekiah had a delegation from Babylon come, that uh, Hezekiah was kind of showing them the kingdom. He was, he was being hospitable to them. And one of the things he did was he showed them the treasures, the treasures of the land. When Isaiah heard this, he... Um, went back to Hezekiah and he said, oh, you've made a huge mistake. 
you've now armed the Babylonians with this information about the treasures of the kingdom, and the day has come when the Chaldeans are going to come and take that, that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians will come and conquer um, Judah for that. And sure enough, as we know historically, that took place. But there was also on the heels of the Babylonians, uh, there was another great world power that began to rise up. Namely, it was the Persians. And the Persians, under the name of the first Persian king, was named Cyrus. And he was called Cyrus the Great. Uh, Cyrus will, essentially, with the Persians, literally go capture virtually all of the known world. And it became a Persian world empire. In fact, it will lead to uh, the Greeks, and the Greeks will counterattack the Persians, and Alexander the Great will show up. Well, Cyrus the Great is the one who built the Persian Empire to begin with, uh, and it was it really sprung forward by the defeat of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. Now, here's Isaiah. He's got this history of the Babylonians coming down and seeing the treasures, knowing what's going to be happening. Jeremiah, in fact, is the specific prophet that said that they would go into captivity for 70 years, and Jeremiah was the prophet at the time that Judah went into captivity. Isaiah saw it beforehand. But Isaiah looked even further and saw the kingdom, or he saw the king, that would come and defeat the Babylonians and then allow the remnant of Judah to be able to return. He could see that. And that little um, historical event about uh, Judah and the remnant returning from the Babylonians and coming back to Jerusalem is a foreshadowing. It's like a metaphor picture of future restoration things at the end of the ages. And there's other parallels that tie into that. So he's hinting at uh, the pieces that are going to that that lend itself to a bigger picture. If you recall, in the introduction, I shared with you that Isaiah's perspective on the future is a little bit like um, you're standing in the plains and you're looking at a mountain range, and what you see is one great mountain, and you see a lot of stuff in front of it, and so forth. But you don't get the sense of perspective. Well, there's this mountain in front of that, and then this other mountain is over there in front of that one, and, and this mountain is here before we ever get to the big mountain that we can see from a great distance. And that's essentially what he's doing here. The great mountain that Isaiah has seen is is the Messiah's kingdom, ultimately the Messiah's kingdom. But he's having to deal with some of these other things in front of it, like the day of the Lord the gathering of all of the elect of Israel. He's having to deal with the present situations that are happening in his day, with the Babylonians, and then he's going to talk about the Persians and what they're going to... So he's kind of laying out a sequence, if you will, but it's not necessarily given to us in a simple narrative. First this, second this, second, third this. You know, it's not given that way. He just hits on these themes. He hits on these messages, and... Every one of these messages, every time he brings this up, it's for the purpose to motivate and provoke Israel to turn to the Lord and to share with them how God is going to be their deliverer. He's going to be their redeemer. He's going to be the one that remains faithful to them, despite them being unfaithful. 
and that the Lord is going to get them through every one of those situations until we get to the end. Um, that's a great message of encouragement that applies even still today. Each of us, in the course of our lifetime, if God grants you the grace for you to live a long time, uh, you're going to go through a series of events in your life. Some of them are going to be very discouraging moments. Some of them are going to be highlights. Some of them are going to be wonderful times. Uh, some of them are going to be difficult times. But ultimately, you have this goal at the end of your life that you have this gift of eternal life and that when it's all said and done, we're going to be in the kingdom. And so we have each of us have that little perspective of getting through earlier things, knowing that this is the ultimate goal to be up in there. So he's sermonizing to that element, speaking to what's going on there, and he's going to mention Cyrus again. Now, let me also give one other complimentary thing. Cyrus, King Cyrus, is held in very high degree by the children of Israel. Because he defeated the Babylonians and brought about the release of the Jews to go back to the land and also funded them and helped them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, helped them with the city of Jerusalem to be reestablished, Cyrus is, is held in very high regard. Now, Isaiah will speak to him as though he is a special servant of the Lord. If you followed last week, we introduced the servant of the Lord, which is a reference to the Messiah. And he uses that same language about King Cyrus, uh, that he's the servant of the Lord, in that, and here's the parallel, that he has something to do with the restoration of Jerusalem. And so he honors him in that regard. And the children of Israel, the Jewish people today, Honor the memory of Cyrus, the king, because that's exactly what he did. And we have the story of Nehemiah and them coming back and rebuilding the walls and so forth. Well, in just recent days of our life, uh, President Trump made the proclamation and he's made the move to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And Israel is so appreciative of the American president finally doing what every other American president said they were going to do but didn't do, that they have coined, uh, they put together a commemorative coin. And they have the image of Cyrus, the king, standing by an image of President Trump. And they regard President Trump, because of his decision concerning Jerusalem and the embassy there, as equivalent to the ancient story of Cyrus, the king, who was part of the restoral of Jerusalem and the release of the captives uh, from Babylon. Um, I wanted to give you that background because you're going to hear some hints. You're going to hear Isaiah speak to this king, and I wanted to make sure that we all have the historical context and what is the meaning behind it, why Cyrus is held in such high regard. Uh, and Isaiah will speak of him in very high regard. Now, mind you, he's speaking into the future. So he's setting the stage that God says, I will choose Cyrus. And by the way, Cyrus kind of existed. He was the first Persian king. 
and uh, and he was the one that built the Persian Empire, which later came and captured and destroyed uh, Babylon. So with all that background, let us go forward here just a little bit and see what else um, he has to say. Verse 22, Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sugar cane with money, neither have you filled me with fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, in those days, the worship of the Lord was a part of the temple service. And essentially what Isaiah is saying is that things have gotten so bad that the people are not even coming to the temple and worshiping anymore. And um, and instead, they're burdened with so many sins that they just don't don't come. They just kind of give up. Um, the uh, let me just tell you that that one of the signs in every ministry, and this is true in the, in the ministry that I've had as well as in other ministries I've seen. Uh, obviously, when the people start uh, stop coming. When the people stop attending, when the people stop listening, your ministry is going down the tubes. Whether it be a church or a ministry or whatever the case may be, those people will be drifting away. And the same thing happened to the temple in Jerusalem. In the course of my lifetime of um, ministering, I've seen many brethren come and go some for a season. And I could always tell when they're getting ready to leave. Even the ones that are very close by, I can tell when they're getting ready to leave is because they stop listening to the teaching. They don't listen to the Torah teaching anymore. They don't uh, pay attention to other teachings that I have available. And sure enough, in three months, once that starts, they're not around. They're just gone. And the, part of the reason for it is, is that we don't understand spiritually why it's necessary for you to continue to keep up with the teaching and continue to keep in the fellowship and continue to attend. That's how you're spiritually nourished over the long run. That's how you get a drink in the wilderness. That's how you get a piece of bread, spiritual food. But if you cease to be a part of those things, guess what you do? You starve to death. You spiritually starve to death. And it comes in such a way where you don't even realize it's happening to you. You just get weaker, 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 and the next thing you know, it's not part of your life anymore. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the end of your salvation. I am suggesting, though, that that is the end of you being in fellowship and being active and walking out your faith. And essentially, that's what Isaiah is addressing here with Israel in his day. In fact, in an earlier reference, Isaiah, the, the dynamics of what was going on when Isaiah was the prophet was, he said, had it not been for the remnant, and that the remnant was a very small portion of Israel, Israel would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. It would have just gotten further into sin and then been destroyed. 
uh, probably destroyed itself. But because there was a small remnant uh, that that remained faithful, uh, that was the thread that kept things going. And he's addressing the vast majority of the people. You don't come and make an, uh, an offering anymore to the Lord. You don't come and worship the Lord anymore. Uh, you don't come and inquire of the Lord anymore. You know, have I burdened you with all of these things? No, I've not burdened you with them. You you don't even do anything with regard to me. You don't even buy some sugar cane. You know, and give me a taste of something sweet. You know, like a little piece of candy. You don't even give a piece of candy is basically what he was saying. And and he says, but instead you burden me with all of your sins and your iniquities, you know, from it. Verse 25, he continues on. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause. Then you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned, and your spokesman has transgressed against me. And I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to a revilement. Essentially what he's saying is, he said, look, all of your transgressions, I, the Lord, I, I can wipe them out. And I will do it for my own sake, not for you. I am not, essentially what he was saying is, I'm not going to remove your transgressions so you can turn around and go do it again. I will remove them because it's the right thing to do and that you'll have a change of life. And the same thing can be said of any person who turns and repents to the Lord today. In fact, this is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6. Is that when we turn to the Lord and we receive the grace of God, that's not so that you get some fire insurance that you get, instead of going to hell, you get to go to heaven, and that you can still continue to go and sin however you wish in the world. That's not what it's for. In fact, he uses the expression multiple times, God forbid. Well, here's Isaiah giving his version of that and saying, look, this is not how this game is played. I am the Lord. I do remove transgressions. I do redeem. I do forgive I said, but it's not so that you can turn around and continue in that life. It's not for those purposes. And Israel had gotten to the point where they weren't even thinking clearly about this. It was not getting their attention. They would, they were very short-fused. It reminds me a little bit of a small child. A small child who uh, does something inappropriate, mom disciplines the child. The child's very sorry, gets disciplined, okay, everything's restored, and the kid gets up and goes and does it again. You know, and here we are again, repeated. How many times can this happen uh, before, in the case of mom, she's had it? Well, the same question is asked of the Lord. Now, we know he's long-suffering, but how many times? There's got to be a finite number. There's got to be a time when it's, uh, when it's completed. Part of the definition of the expression, the Lord, the Lord God, speaks to that. Uh, the word Lord in that reference is a reference to his mercy. 
The second Lord is in reference to mercy again. But when he says God, he's talking about justice. So Lord, Lord, God turns into mercy, mercy, justice. There comes a moment when justice is going to get dealt, and what you should do is not push the mercy thing on the Lord. Don't push the grace of God and his willingness to forgive of sin. Don't push that to his limit. The um, By the way, I'll just share with you that um, this is the same model that we use at um, Camp Yeshua, and at the Feast of Tabernacles for people who come to the camps and decide to break the rules. So when they come and they break the rules, they're going to get mercy. And they go again. And if they break the rules again, they're still going to get mercy. But if they break the rules again, they get justice. They get the negative end of the process instead of the positive end of the process. So it's a little bit like one, two, justice. And that is a kind of a common uh, expression that's part of the expression, the Lord, the Lord God, is, is inherent with that. And what we see in the case of Israel and the Lord dealing with Israel over its many generations is there would be a series of generations that would disobey the Lord and then they would get restored, they'd rise up, get blessings, they would get blessings, they would forget the Lord, he would warn them, then here he would give mercy to them, give mercy to them, and finally they had to be judged. The enemies would come in and prevail over them, other bad things would happen, and then they'd repent, and then he'd, you know, they'd get blessings again, instead of the curses. And the history of Israel is this curve of, Blessings and curses and blessings and curses. And, and by the way, that's the reason why it's completely consistent. That when the Messiah came and they rejected the Messiah, guess what? It was really bad then. You get scattered to the nations. You want to show hostility to me, the Lord, like Moses spoke of in Leviticus 26? I'll scatter you to the nations. I'll kick you completely out of the land for that one. By the way, that happened. And in fact, we in this day are only now seeing the remnant returning to the land. In this generation, that's how recent it is, for many hundreds of years, Israel was completely cast out of the land and separate from the land because of hostility toward God and rejection of his, of his commandments and so forth. However, praise the Lord, just like in Isaiah's day, he has maintained a remnant and this small little thread uh, it continues to go through it. So God's promises to us continue. The covenant is never quite broken. He doesn't abhor us so as to reject us. And by the way, the Christian church who goes around advocating uh, that the Lord has rejected Israel is false. It is absolutely false. As long as there is a remnant you know, God remains faithful, full of mercy, and he remembers the covenant for the people. And in particular, I, I love this part. Even if Israel doesn't remember the covenant, God remembers the covenant for Israel. Isaiah 
is sermonizing in and around all of these concepts. He's in his day addressing the direction they're going, the direction they need to go, the surety of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, and and the standards for the Lord. Let me let me I wanna I wanna just look at that verse twenty five one more time. I even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. <clears throat> for those of us um, that are following the Lord. That is a very powerful, encouraging word to me. Let me tell you why. Um, I don't have to. I've turned back to the Lord. I'm trying to follow the Lord. I don't have to worry one bit about, do I need to do something more or in addition uh, to take care of that sin problem I had with the Lord? Do, do I need to do that? Is it, do I need to make a decision with regard to it? And the answer is no. If the Lord says he forgives, he forgives. It's not he forgives with contingencies or he forgives if you meet certain conditions. I mean, that's what men do. Men will have a dispute with another man and say, okay, well, I'll forgive you, but you've got to do such and such. That's not the way the Lord forgives. He sees you come, and he says, I will forgive you. And that's the simpler way. Let me make a recommendation for you in all of your interpersonal relationships. Learn to get into the habit of the, the, the just forgiving. Stop worrying about contingencies, well, so-and-so's uh, got to change his behavior, whatever. Like, for example, when you give and help with the need. You ever heard the uh, the person who says, well, I'll give to him, but he's abused it, you know, and he used poor judgment and so forth. Why should I give to him? That's not giving. That's you playing judge over him. Giving would be you give regardless. You forgive regardless. You do it the way the Lord has done with you. The Lord has forgiven me for a lot of things regardless of me. And I take great assurance in that he has stated in his own words, he does not remember my sins. He's not going to come back later on and upbraid me. Remember that sin you did and I forgive you of? And remember that one you did? It's not going to happen. Thank goodness. I'm not going to have to address it again. When he forgives, he forgives. When he gives, he gives. And that is the manner that when the Messiah says, um, you should forgive even as you are forgiven, that's what he was talking about. Look at the way the Lord has forgiven us. While we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, he didn't even get us to the point where we were repenting yet, and he still forgave us. And when the Messiah did die, he died for future generations that weren't even born yet, and their sins as well. Why did he do that? For his own sake. Because he is the Lord. That's how great he is and worthy of praise, obviously. 
when you make the decision to forgive, you make the decision to give. Do it for your own sake. Don't do it based on the other person. Do it because you're resolved to pursue that path as the Lord has pursued with you. To follow in the way that the Lord has done it for you. A very powerful spiritual lesson there. And I, this verse, this statement about the Lord is incredibly profound when it comes to the whole subject of forgiveness and uh, giving to those that are in need. All right, chapter 44 and verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. Let me stop there for just a moment. Yeshurun, is a, this is a reference back to what Moses said at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The second song of Moses, that we're, and I think it's Deuteronomy 32, um, he refers to Israel as Yeshurun. Yeshurun is a very honorable name. It means upright one or righteous one. And it's a title for Israel when they're walking with the Lord. Yeshurun, the upright one. You know, it's a very positive statement being made. You should pursue in your own spiritual word, in your own spiritual path, where the Lord would see you and refer to you as Yeshurun. That is like the highest compliment that you could get from the Lord. Upright one. Oh, come to me, upright one. Righteous one, come to me. Um, so he's making reference to him. Verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like the poplars of the stream of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's and the one who will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. There's a day coming when Israel will have that kind of relationship with the Lord. When you and I will have that kind of relationship with the Lord, we'll be naming things after the Lord. We'll be saying, I belong to the Lord. Well, in fact, that is part of our testimony today as a result of the redemptive work of the Messiah. The Messiah came and made it possible for us to do those things. And our righteousness... Our being an upright one, if you will, comes as a result of the righteousness of the Messiah that he has anointed us, that he has done this good thing for us and established us in the faith. By trusting in him, we've suddenly received certain attributes of him that are now put upon us. Because we name ourselves after him, we pursue him, and we give away our own identity for him. Paul, in the book of Galatians, emphasizes this when he talks about the life we now live after we've been forgiven is that we've been crucified with him, but he lives within us. And that's what he's talking about. We're talking about being anointed, of, of making a transitional step where that you've, especially the, um, 
the waters where he talks about, I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. Remember if I shared with you before, when Isaiah uses this expression, uses language, he's talking about the waters of eternal life, the waters of salvation. And again, it's another reference to God's salvation is like a, a bunch of water in a wilderness. It's like a great drink of water. In fact, the Messiah himself used this word picture, and he said, I'm a drink that if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. And he's, and he's talking about a flow of waters here that is so profound that it causes poplars to spring up. Now, let me tell you what, a, for those of you who know this, poplar is a tree. It's a very fast-growing, upright tree. In fact, they have a tendency to grow so fast and upright that sometimes the wind will come over and they'll break off and snap the branches and, and things like that because they grow so fast. Well, if you get a poplar that is growing near a source of water, you are going to have your hands full because that tree is going to grow in a great big hurry. And, in fact, uh, uh, I remember uh, in uh, previous homes where we had, the, the thought was, do, well, do you want to want a poplar in because it's a fast-growing tree, you know, for our landscaping? And we'll water it. And there's a you know, sprinkler system, and it'll definitely grow. And we have to take into account, well, wait a minute, let's have another thought about that, uh, because you know what happens. Those poplars grow so fast that if the windstorm comes along, it'll be breaking branches off because it gets up there, and it's so huge. It just goes straight up. It doesn't billow out like a tree like this. It goes straight up and almost into a spire kind of thing. He's making the comparison to like the way a poplar tree will grow when it has a steady source of water to what you and I will be doing and how we'll be upright. We will be raised upright in a great big hurry. We will prosper in being upright uh, because of what the Lord will do for us. Um, not only forgiveness of sins, but his anointing. In fact, he uses the expression, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. As you all know, when the Messiah came and did the work of redemption, one of the very first things he said after he accomplished, I have to go so that you can get the Holy Spirit. Because that was the plan. The plan is that there would be waters of salvation, and then the Lord would pour out his spirit. You and I are in the time frame of God's great plan, where we've seen the redemption and benefited from it. We have seen, even before that, God make the covenant with his people, make the promises to us that we trust and believe in who this God is, the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's given us redemption. And now we are the recipients of the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know what's next, don't you? The promise that's coming next is to be gathered to the kingdom and get to live in the kingdom with him. And I've, I've shared this before. Let me uh, uh, offer it again just so that we kind of have a context here for what I shared. I believe that God has been in the business of, from the very beginning, of manifesting himself and making himself known. That his way of working the relationship with mankind 
is to introduce himself, to share some things about himself. And as you continue in this relationship with him, you learn more and more and more. The same thing would happen to us if we formed a relationship with someone. You're going to learn first probably the name. You're going to learn where they live. You're going to learn what what they do, what they work, what the things they enjoy, things they don't enjoy. You, you're going to learn a lot of different things about the person. That's part of the – you don't get all of that right at the first moment that you meet. That comes as a result of relationship, activities together. That comes as a result of living and being friends with this person or being in the same community or or whatever the case may be. You get to know the person. Well, the Lord's been doing the same thing. Do you, if you stop and think about it from the macro picture, the first 2,000 years of biblical history, how was God revealing himself? As a father. As a father. Creator, father. Father to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fathers. The fathers that brought forth the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel. That's the first 2,000 years. It's the, the theme is about fathers. The second 2,000 years, the theme shifts to the son. Isaac, the promised son. The sons of Israel. Not the fathers of Israel. The sons of Israel. Leading all the way to the son of God. The last 2,000 years, what has been the dominant theme? The Spirit, the Spirit of God, giving us the Holy Spirit, the anointing of us, and so forth. So let's step back. We've had 6,000 years of uh, world history here, biblical history. What did we see God do? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have the enviable position of being at this stage in the history of mankind where we see it all. We saw what God has done in the past and all of these instances. Now, consider Abraham and where he was at. He saw God as father. He understood there was a promise of a son, and he was hoping to be led by the Holy Spirit. Jacob himself, in his blessings to his son, prays and talks about he knows his Redeemer lives. I've not yet seen him, but I know he lives. I know he's there. I know he will come and do the work he's going to do. And I know that we will be led by the Spirit of God. And and we saw all the hints, Moses, you know, and the promises that came through him and so forth. If you step back and take a look at the big picture, which we have the benefit of doing because of who we are in the station of life and, and the history of what God has been doing with mankind, we see this overarching plan. We see that God has been attempting to manifest himself to us, to make himself known. That, to me, is an inspiration to get to know the Lord. That's clearly what he's been trying to do. We need to respond to that. We need to get in parallel with God's plan and not doing something else, not trying to change the plan, not altering the plan and so forth. And one of my rubs... Uh, that I have with some of my New Covenant brethren, is they are completely devoid of understanding this plan. They see the plan come along, 
and they think it replaces the other previous stuff. Israel thought that what was going on with Israel completely replaced what God had been doing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christians with the Messiah, they think it completely replaces what God was doing with Israel. Well, if that is true, then I guess we're going to be a future history because God will obviously do something really dramatically different when we get to the kingdom and the church will be no more. I mean, if you follow the flow of the logic. Now, I don't think any of that is correct or true. What I think is correct and true is that God purposed from the very beginning when he called Abraham out from his father's house and he brought him to the land, he said, I'm going to do something with you that will result in your family, your descendants, and that's what I'm going to do with the world. And by the way, it's through you and your seed, eventually all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what I start with you, I'll build Israel. After I get Israel built, it will be a light to the nations. And I will come and do the work of redemption, not only for all of you and your descendants, I'll do the work of redemption for the whole world. And oh, by the way, when it's all said and done, I will come to be king over the whole world. And my enemies will be wiped out, and those that are my servants will serve with me in the kingdom. That's the big picture. There's that, that's plan A. There's no plan B. With God, that's always been the plan from the very beginning. I think that Isaiah understood this plan. And so I think he says things that are consistent with that plan, emphasizing it for it. Verse 6, chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. That you can almost take right to the New Testament. That's language of the New Testament. Remember me telling you that there's quotations and there's uh, arguments made in the New Testament that come right from Isaiah? What did the Messiah say of himself? I am the first and the last. I'm the Aleph and the Tav. Here's him saying it, Isaiah saying it, Yeshua said it, in the book of Revelation, directly of himself. And who is Yeshua? He is the king of Israel. He is the redeemer. He is the Lord of hosts. And the reference there to the Lord of hosts is, I'm the God that comes back at the end of the ages to defeat my enemies. I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. I do not have competition as a God. I just have people who are either are believers in me or not believers in me. And that's one of the things I've always shared with people. Um, when it comes to um, us expressing ourselves one with another in our faith, any definition that we use about identifying ourselves, oh, I'm a messianic believer, I'm, I'm one of the sons of Abraham, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, whatever. If you use all of those definitions, you're not really using the definition the Bible says with regard to us. The definition of the Bible is there's believers and there's not believers. There's people who worship the one true God and then there's idolaters. 
But that's the definition. That's the definition Isaiah, are you ready for this, is using with Israel. By the way, have you heard any logic here where Isaiah is saying, God has made you separate from all of the other people in the world, and you need to become up honorable, become honorable and separate from the other nations? No. He's only talking about don't be an idolater. And by the way, everybody has the ability to be an idolater. It's an individual decision. It's not a corporate decision. In fact, there are people who dwell in lands that are full of idolaters, but they themselves are not idolaters. There are believers, even in the midst of this world, even though the world does not follow the Lord. Us, in this nation, that describes us. It described uh, the people that were in Israel. He's talking to the remnant about them being separate from transgressors and to continue to be the remnant and believe in the Lord. He goes on to say, verse 7, And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. I love the logic of what um, Isaiah does here. And by the way, I've taken application to this logic. Um, there's been times when I have been in discussions with other theological people. And usually some of the discussions that I've had with some has to do with whether or not the law and the commandments are still binding and applicable and whether or not we should still be obeying the Lord according to uh, what God gave to us on Mount Sinai. And, of course, they're arguing against it and other kinds of things like that. And, and so what I uh, have a tendency to say, and I said, so you're claiming you have a better understanding of God than I do. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let, let's see how that works out. If you have a much better understanding of God and so forth, why don't you explain everything that's happened in the past and how it fits into what you're saying, and why don't you tell us what's going to happen in the future? If you're so smart at this moment, why don't you put it all in context for me? Tell me what the Lord is going to be doing. Now, this was the reason why I've posed the following question in some of my discussions with people about this. I remind some of my Christian churchmen, especially when they're talking about the subject of the rapture and, you know, they don't want to go through the great trib. And I said, you know, when you finally get there, I don't know if you've taken note of this or not, but that new Jerusalem, you know, the one with the 12 pearly gates and so forth, and the gates are named after the tribes of Israel. Do you remember that? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, there's no Gentile gate. There's no Baptist gate, Presbyterian gate, no Methodist gate, no Assembly of God gate. You have to be numbered with one of the tribes of Israel. So here you are. You want nothing to do 
with Israel. You think you're an entity unto yourself, and yet you know very good and well that into the future, the gates you've got to go through, you've got to go through the name of one of those gates, one of those tribes. So how in the world were you thinking you were going to get in that place? Because the reason why there's different gates is that's the entrance point for them. How are you going to do that? If you think all that has gone away and it's no longer binding, and you think the 12 tribes of Israel have no more say for the kingdom of God. There's a whole series of other questions that can be posed in the same way about it. What it fundamentally comes down to is that, and by the way, Israel in the day that Isaiah was there was doing some of that same stuff. They were forgetting what God had done before. They were forgetting what God had said at Mount Sinai. They were forgetting the covenant that God had made with Israel. They were forgetting King David and the covenant that God made with him. They were forgetting the temple and God dwelling with them in the land. They were forgetting that. They were forgetting the promises and the blessings that they were receiving from the land and and just sloughing it off and, and not remembering what the Lord had said. Moses warned Israel that when they went into the land, that if they ever forgot the Lord, the Lord would cast them out of the land. And that's what we have as the prophets coming after the, the nation has been divided into two kingdoms. Northern kingdoms getting ready to go into captivity. Southern kingdoms going to go in captivity too. Eventually they'll all be scattered throughout all the nations of the world. Why? Because they've forgotten the Lord and they didn't do what the Moses and the prophets said. By the way, the same thing can happen to us. If Israel was judged by the Lord in that regard for those behaviors, you think the Lord will judge you differently if you decide to forget the Lord and get up and walk away and ignore him and not pay attention anymore? I dare say to you that the God that we serve is a righteous God and a righteous judge. And if we make the same mistakes that Israel has made in the past, we will suffer the same consequences. That's the life that we have. That's the difficult, that's the struggle that we're in, is to be able to continue to maintain, continue to remember, and do the things that will keep us in good standing uh, with the Lord so that we can be his witnesses in the midst of everything else going on in the world. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time here, but let me summarize for you from verse 9 down to essentially verse 20. I'm not going to read this whole to you. You can. But essentially, this is a wonderful thing that Isaiah does. He talks about um, idol worshipers. And he uses the example of a guy goes out and selects a tree. And so he chops the tree down, and he's going to make an idol out of a piece of the tree. So he cuts the tree and the wood, and, and he forms the shape of, a, of an idol. Okay? 
Now he takes the other wood of the tree and he makes a fire. And he cooks his supper on it. So he eats his supper, literally eating the substance that the idol is made out of. That's what he destroys and eats his supper off of that fire that was provided for. But that one piece of wood that didn't go in the fire, he sets it up and he claims it's a god. I mean, if you stop and think about it, the lunacy of this is absolutely incredible. I've loved Isaiah's explanation of what an idolater does. Idolaters will pick a thing that they want to go after and they want to pursue and they want to believe, and then they set it up and they don't realize all the refuse that's around the things that they discarded that are around it that they just trash. And, I mean, if it is God, then all parts of it would be God. And that's what an idolater does. They just cherry pick out the part that they want that they make their God and everything else gets turned into refuse. Well, the truth of the matter is that wooden uh, idol is every bit as much a firewood and refuse as the rest of the tree that he got. It's the same stuff. And if you put it in the fire, it'll burn up just like the other stuff that burned up. It's not going to remain. And that's the futility of idolatry. As a final thing, let me just tell you that uh, there's a whole series of um, classes of idols uh, that the prophets tell us about. One of which is called Asherim, which means trees of praise. Uh, every year, as we come up on the holiday of Christmas, the world goes out and gets themselves an evergreen tree, drags it in their house, sets it up so it doesn't teeter or totter, decorates it with gold and silver and all kinds of shiny stuff to make it attractive. Everybody woos on the tree. Everybody, oh, look how beautiful the tree is. Sing songs to it, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas. You know, they sing songs. They're idolaters. Now, I've had a lot of Christian friends to me tell me and said, no, I'm not, that's not idolatry to me. That's not what I'm regarding as. I believe in Jesus. I said, right, I agree with you. I don't think that is your intent to make it into an idol, except for the part when you get down on your knees to get the blessings out from under. Then, then you definitely look like an idolater then. That's how shrewd and deceiving idolatry is. And, of course, you know we have lots of brethren who name Yeshua as the Messiah. They believe in him for his redemption, and yet they hold to their idols. They're not new or unique. The children of Israel did exactly the same thing when they left Egypt. They were hiding idols in their tents. Rachel, on her return back, was hiding idols from her father in her pack that she was sitting on. That's what people do. They secretly keep their idols going. They may not necessarily expose them, but they do. And this is a wonderful passage on the futility of idolatry. So that brings us down to uh, verse 24, and in our less, next lesson, we will pick up at chapter 44, verse 24, and we'll continue on. Thank you for being a part of the study. Lord bless all of you.